If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the January 20th, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I am Zaylor Stout. Tonight, we celebrate Martin Luther King Day by turning our lavender spotlight to Bayard Rustin, the queen behind the king who taught passive resistance to the movement and organized the 1963 March on Washington. And live in studio, I interview Zaylor Stout. That's you. <laughs> Lawyer, activist, and author of the book, Our Gay History in 50 States. He's my favorite author. And he's in the room. <laughs> but before all that, we have to spill some tea. The honest tea. It's so wonderful to have you in studio today to do honest tea with you, Zaylor Zatho Stout Esquire. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> I promise you, I won't say all that together, but I just use Zaylor. But it's such a beautiful name. Thank you. There's a lots of news to delve into, and so much of it connects to your book, Our Gay History in 50 States. First story that we want to talk about comes from LifeSiteNews.com, January 14, 2020, reported by Kevin Mooney, about parents protesting in New Jersey to protect children from radical new statewide LGBT curricula. What do you think about that? It's unfortunately the same arguments that have been put forward for all these years. Parents saying that they want to be the first ones to talk to their kids in regards to sexuality and, and that kind of stuff. Then do it. Because these kids are in school. They have classmates that are gay. They have classmates that are lesbian and are transitioning, even in elementary school. So if the parents aren't having that discussion, then shame on the parents for not having that discussion with their kids. But teaching them about the way of life should always be um, at the forefront. And again, there's part of the separation of church and state. This gets me to the, you know, my legal background, but it's protecting people from religion as well. Education is a secular space if you're sending your kids to public schools. And if you want to send them to parochial school, great. They'll have a different education there. So that's my two cents. And it's a very solid two cents, too. One thing really quick to add yeah. to that. It reminds me of the abstinence education policy mm -hmm. that we know didn't work. And so it's the same thing here. So if you don't talk about LGBT stuff, your kids aren't going to come out as LGBT. Your kids are already LGBT. It's whether they're going to accept themselves or not. And that's really what it's all about. We don't go away just because you don't talk about us. Agreed. But what really stood out to me in this article were key talking points and code words and phrases. Mm -hmm. And I'm all about getting past the why. I know why this is going on. How do we work with it? How do we make things better? And certain words jumped out, like teaching lifestyles mm. and life choices that are 100% against our family values. Mm -hmm. 
And these are code words yeah. meant to frighten people. And, and they just, they wear them like their favorite winter coat. Yeah. You know, they just hold, hold it close to their vest. And LGBT curricula and assault on religious liberty, a few more. A special interest group helping to develop the LGBT curricula has a radical agenda. And one parent warned about gender ideology and brainwashing. The only thing that I can add in regards to that, and yes, all those buzzwords are always there across the nation in regards to people fighting against equality, whether it be a bathroom bill or the like, is the fact that LGBT kids are in these conservative families as well. And there's reasons why there's these increases in regards to suicide rates and harming oneself and those types of things. And it's, it's not the acceptance that you would hope and expect. No, it's not. And I just think it behooves us to learn the lexicon of that viewpoint. So we know how to communicate back and forth. We can't ignore these things. We have to be, be, just be aware and be engaged. And by embracing the language they use and approaching them with that and trying to kind of turn that around in a loving, informed way, mm-hmm. I think is the direction we can head in. Right, right. I agree. And we also know, we need to know who, who's, who's speaking out. And in the article, they, they mentioned Victoria Jakelski. She's a state director of a grassroots group called Protect Your Children. Each state has an organization like that. Mm-hmm. Each and every state does. And I mean, you hear words like protect your children. And what do you want to do? You want to grab your kids and hold them close to your vest, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a knee-jerk reaction that's totally based in fear. It's fear. Absolutely. And kids are coming out at younger and younger ages. I mean, the millennials are the highest percentage of self-identifying LGBTQ, 8%. And -hmm. why is that? Because we've become a more accepting, inclusive community and country where people can feel as though they can actually come out. Are people converting to being gay? (laughs) It's ridiculous the stuff that they come up with. But that's probably always been the percentage. It's just that in generations past, it wasn't accepted. It wasn't spoken about. It wasn't. You know, but now that we truly are a global community because Mm -hmm. of social media, one of the positive aspects of social media and what we're doing here today Mm -hmm. as well, you get people identifying, you get those numbers, Mm -hmm. those actual numbers coming out. Uh, But I want to note who's also fighting for us. In the article, LGBT legislation was signed into law on January 31st, 2019 by New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, a Democrat. Yep. And New Jersey became the second state in the nation following California to pass a law requiring public schools to teach about our LGBT plus history. Yep. And since January, we've also included Oregon, Illinois, and Colorado. So we have five states now. We are moving on up. That's wonderful, wonderful. Now, our second story that we want to talk about is uh, U.S. Democrats are seeking to release transgender migrants that are being held in federal detention centers. This is from Reuters.com on January 14, 2020, and reported by Matthew Levitas. Now, dozens of Democrats in the U.S. Congress asked government immigration authorities to release all transgender migrants held in federal t- detention, saying that they are particularly at risk of being attacked or harmed. Now, you do a lot of work for the transgender community mm-hmm. in, from uh, directly related to your law firm and in another, another organization yep. that you want to mention. Yeah, I serve on the board for Reclaim, which provides mental health services to transgender and gender non-binary youth. Um, but this is this is an important, important aspect. I mean, if you think about immigration and, and more often than not why people are coming here from some of these other countries, it's because they're being persecuted. And so p- putting them in a position where they're with people that could persecute them, it's just it's just inhumane and it doesn't make any sense. I mean, um, there's there's 
there's lots of changes that have to happen in our immigration process. We need to change policies. We need to have more judges. We need to, you know, speed up the process so that people, it shouldn't take, you know, decades. It takes certain people from certain countries decades to get through our immigration process because the way that it's set up. And everybody can agree that there's something wrong with it, but nobody's fixing it. But the aspect in regards to transgender folks, I mean, if you read, I know you read the rest of the article, but I encourage folks to read this article because transgender folks end up spending twice as much time in these detention facilities and and it's just they're either they're either in general population where they're at risk for being assaulted or sexually assaulted or they're in they're in um isolation right um and which is extremely harmful in its own absolutely i mean we have we have we have data in regards to that even for our own prisoners i mean here in los angeles i know that our i believe our jail was one of the first ones that has a separate um, um, detention area space for individuals that are uh, that identify as LGBT, and 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 so that's that, and that was one of the models in the country. If my memory serves me correct, I actually got to tour it when I uh, was in law school and um, was uh, clerking at the public defender's office. But you know, we can do we can do better, and we need to do better. Yes, we do. And as your T-shirt says, I just noticed he's wearing a T-shirt in studio. It says, "I will change the world." Yes, thank you, Minnesota Twins. <laughs> no, but speaking, you mentioned data. Speaking of data, the article does point out that uh, as of January twentieth, uh, as of January two thousand twenty, more than forty-one thousand migrants are being detained by U.S. authorities under the Trump administration's efforts to curtail the large numbers of families arriving from Central America, and there is no reliable estimate on how many transgender migrants are among them. Mm-hmm. This really stood out to me. What's the underlying message in not having reliable info on transgender migrants being, tamed, being detained? It's, it reminds me of the census. And, and we're not going to be counted. Our community is not going to be counted in this next census. And, and, and that doesn't help. I mean, it doesn't help with anything, whether it be you know funding, whether it be research, whether it be any of these types of things. So it's, it's erase, trying to erase our, our community and our history. And yes, that's right. But let us let us remind ourselves, and this is a very important point that uh, the author of this uh, this article wrote: the United States is bound by domestic and international law to protect, not punish, vulnerable populations escaping from persecution. Thank you, Mike, uh, Representative Mike Quigley of Illinois. He's leading the effort to release uh, our transgender migrants that are being held in federal detention. Yeah, I'm going to be posting this article on the book's Facebook page later on today. What book would that be? Argue History in 50 States. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, and a happy, clappy uh, story, number three. GOP lawmakers' extremely conservative sex education bill is dead. Yay. She blames LGBTQ activism. Oh, activists. Yay, Yay for activists. <laughs> this is from LGBTQNation.com from January 15th, 2020 uh, by Daniel Villarreal. Mm. I love that name. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Arizona State Senator Sylvia Allen uh, introduced State Senate Bill 1082, and her bill banned discussion of homosexuality in schools. But she said it was not tainted. But she said now it was tainted by the false perception that it was anti-gay. So not talking about me is not anti-gay. Well, and specifically saying you can't use the term or any reference to anybody being homosexual. It's not anti LGBT? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Confused. Mm-hmm. Now, let's make it clear that the, the, the main intention of her public school sex education bill was to prevent students below seventh grade from receiving any sex education and allowing parents to sue schools who failed to meet SB 102's guidelines for publicly posting sex ed materials. Okay. Hmm. Now, 
Alan said her bill was about improving transparency, another code word, Mm. so that parents could make more informed decisions about their kids' sex ed. But Arizona already allows for parents to review sex ed class materials and opt out if they disapprove. Trying to correct a problem that isn't there. Telling you something, exactly. Pretending that something that exists that's already in there for parents to have, not telling them about that, Mm -hmm. but wanting to create a more restrictive you know, option, because that's her take on things. Well, I'd say we um, we rely on our experts in this area. So that would be psychologists and psychiatrists in regards to when is the appropriate time for kids to learn in regards to sex ed. And I would defer to them. And um, if that means that it should happen in grammar school, I support whatever it is that the experts say. That's not my field. And we it need doesn't more sound like it's hers either. <laughs> clearly, <laughs> clearly not, yay, activist. So thank you so much for spilling some tea with us here today. I love tea. It's great. Thanks. Well, Zaylor, for the first time in my life, I almost cut off short here at Honest Tea, oh, which is so unlike me. So, which, But this gives us an opportunity to delve into a fourth topic of the day, a news story, a current news story, hot off the presses. Tennessee passes a bill to allow adoption agencies to ban gay and lesbian parents. And this is from one of our beloved resources, lgbtqnation.com. And uh, yeah, they're at it again. And this is once again cloaked in the protection of religious freedom to use that as a way to restrict our community from growing our families and providing loving homes for children in need. But isn't this really supposed to be about the kids? And if you have more people that are interested in adopting kids and providing safe homes for them, why would you say no to that? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me. And and if this had happened in, let's say, North Carolina, that's where my my nephew and his husband and now their two kids live. And if they hadn't had that opportunity, those two kids, I I can't go into their story. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you, the home they have now is by far more loving and protective than where they came from. And to think if they were still where they were or still in the system, I just can't imagine. As a lawyer, mm-hmm. how would you approach if you were arguing a case like this? And, in this, and this is your home, your birth state. My birth state, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think the first time I got back to Tennessee since I was born was when I was 30. So yeah, oh. well, military brat, so. Right, right. Yeah. So how would you argue a case like this? Well, the thing is, is it's, a cloaked in religious exception. So if it's a religious organization that's involved in the placements, then the government, based on the Constitution and trying to provide protections for individuals from being discriminated against based on their religion, there's a lot of carve-outs in regards to religious organizations to be able to discriminate against LGBT folks. So if you have, like, let's say, a teacher at a parochial school or a Catholic school, they have the ability to be able to discriminate against them once they find out that they're gay, regardless of what the state laws are, because the government does not want to be involved in deciding what religious doctrine is appropriate and not appropriate. So trying to find creative ways for getting some of these laws included in regard to that exception is where they're at in regard to this. So if it's a religious organization then they can try to cloak it as, hey, this is part of our religious teachings and everything. But if it wasn't a religious organization, there's different standards, and that would be a different story. Well, I say we get other adoption agencies who don't have those restrictions to go into the states where these laws are being passed and set up shop. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah, and give us some opportunities to give these kids homes. Again, it should be all about providing as many safe homes for these kids as possible. And LGBT families, it's not easy 
at all to be able to get a kid if you're LGBT. You can't just accidentally get pregnant. So we have a lot to work to do. A yeah. lot of work to do. Yeah, we do. And we're doing it. We are. That LGBT kids are in these conservative families as well. And, you know, there's reasons why there's these increases in regards to suicide rates and harming oneself and those types of, types of things. And it's not, it's not the acceptance that you would hope and expect. No, it's not. And I just think it behooves us to learn the lexicon of that viewpoint. So we know how to communicate back and forth. We can't ignore these things. We have to be, be aware and be engaged. And by embracing the language they use and approaching them with that and trying to kind of turn that around in a loving, informed way, mm-hmm. I think is the direction we can head in. I agree. And we also know we need to know who, who's, who's speaking out. And in the article, they, they mentioned Victoria Jakelski. She's a state director for a grassroots group called Protect Your Children. Each state has an organization like that. Mm-hmm. Each and every state does. And I mean, you hear words like protect your children. And what do you want to do? You want to grab your kids and hold them close to your vest, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and it's a knee-jerk reaction that's totally based in fear. It's fear. Absolutely. And kids are coming out at younger and younger ages. The millennials are the highest percentage of self-identifying LGBTQ, 8%, right? Mm-hmm. And why is that? Because we co- we've become a more accepting, inclusive community and, and country where people can feel as though they can actually come out. Are people converting to being gay? <laughs> it's so ridiculous the stuff that they come up with, but that's probably always been the percentage. It's just that in generations past, it wasn't accepted. It wasn't spoken about. It wasn't. You know, but now that we truly are a global community because mm-hmm. of social media, one of the positive aspects of social media and what we're doing here today mm-hmm. as well, you get people identifying, you get those numbers, mm-hmm. those actual numbers coming out. Yep. But I want to note who's also fighting for us. In the article, LGBT education legis- legislation was signed into law on January 31st, 2019 by New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, a Democrat. Yep. And New Jersey became the second state in the nation following California to pass a law requiring public schools to teach about our LGBT plus history. Yep. And since January, we've also included Oregon, Illinois, and Colorado. So we have five states now. We are moving on up. That's wonderful, wonderful. Now, our second story that we want to talk about is uh, U.S. Democrats are seeking to release transgender migrants that are being held in federal detention centers. This is from Reuters.com on January 14, 2020, and reported by Matthew Levitas. Now, dozens of Democrats in the U.S. Congress asked government immigration authorities to release all transgender migrants held in federal uh, detention, saying that they are particularly at risk of being attacked or harmed. Now, you do a lot of work for the transgender community, directly related to your law firm and another organization that you want to mention. Yeah, I serve on the board for Reclaim, which provides mental health services to transgender and gender non-binary youth. Um, But this is an important, important aspect. I mean, if you think about immigration and more often than not why people are coming here from some of these other countries, it's because they're being persecuted. And so putting them in a position where they're with people that could persecute them is just inhumane and it doesn't make any sense. There's lots of changes that have to happen in our immigration process. We need to change policies. We need to have more judges. We need to, you know, speed up the process so that people, it shouldn't take, you know, decades. It takes certain people from certain countries decades to get through our immigration process because the way that it's set up and everybody can agree that there's something wrong with it, but nobody's fixing it. But the aspect in regards to transgender folks, I mean, if you read, I know you read the rest of the article, but I encourage folks to read this article because transgender folks end up spending twice as much time in these detention facilities. They're either in general population where they're at risk for being assaulted or sexually assaulted, or they're in isolation, 
right? Which is extremely harmful in its own Absolutely. Way. I mean, we have data in regards to that, even for our own prisoners. I mean, here in Los Angeles, I believe our jail was one of the first ones that has a separate detention area space for individuals that identify as LGBT. And that was one of the models in the country, if my memory serves me correct. I actually got to tour it when I uh, was in law school and was uh, clerking at the public defender's office. But we can do better and we need to do better. Yes, we do. And as your T-shirt says, I just noticed he's wearing a T-shirt in studio. It says, I will change the world. Yes. Thank you, Minnesota Twins. (laughs) (laughs) No, but speaking, you mentioned data. Speaking of data, the article does point out that as of January 2020, more than 41,000 migrants are being detained by U.S. authorities under the Trump administration's efforts to curtail the large numbers of families arriving from Central America. And there is no reliable estimate on how many transgender migrants are among them. Mm -hmm. This really stood out to me. What's the underlying message in not having reliable info on transgender migrants being detained? It reminds me of the census. And we're not going to be counted. Our community is not going to be counted in this next census. And that doesn't help. It doesn't help with anything, whether it be funding, whether it be research, whether it be any of these types of things. So it's trying to erase our, our community and our history. Yes, that's right. But let us remind ourselves, and this is a very important point that the author of this article wrote, the United States is bound by domestic and international law to protect, not punish, vulnerable populations escaping from persecution. Thank you, Mike, Representative Mike Quigley of Illinois. He's leading the effort to release our transgender migrants that are being held in federal detention. Yeah, I'm going to be posting this article on the book's Facebook page later on today. What book would that be? Argue History in 50 States. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and a happy, clappy uh, story, number three. GOP lawmakers' extremely conservative sex education bill is dead. Yay. She blames LGBTQ activism. Oh, activists. Yay, Yay for activists. <laughs> this is from LGBTQNation.com from January 15th, 2020 by Daniel Villarreal. Mm. I love that name. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Arizona State Senator Sylvia Allen introduced State Senate Bill 1082, and her bill banned discussion of homosexuality in schools. But she said now it was tainted by the false perception that it was anti-gay. So well, not talking about me. Is not anti-gay? And specifically saying you can't use the term or any reference to anybody being homosexual. It's not anti-LGBT. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm confused. Mm-hmm. Now, let's make it clear that the main intention of her public school sex education bill was to prevent students below seventh grade from receiving any sex education and allowing parents to sue schools who failed to meet SB 102's guidelines for publicly posting sex ed materials. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, Alan said her bill was about improving transparency, another code word, mm. so that parents could make more informed decisions about their kids' sex ed. But Arizona already has, it already allows for parents to review sex ed class materials and opt out if they, if it is, if they disapprove. You know, and Trying to correct a problem that isn't there. It, telling you something, exactly. Pretending that something that exists that's already in there for parents to have, not telling them about that, mm-hmm. but wanting to create a more restrictive option because that's her take on things. We rely on our experts in this area. So that would be psychologists and psychiatrists in regards to when is the appropriate time for kids to learn in regards to sex ed. And I would defer to them. If that means that it should happen in grammar school, I support whatever it is that the experts say. That's not my field. And we it need doesn't more sound like it's hers either. <laughs> clearly, <laughs> clearly not, yay, activist. So thank you so much for spilling some tea with us here today. I love tea. It's great. Thanks. 
And that's the honest tea. Virginia Woolf, novelist, feminist, and modernist, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in 1882 in London, Virginia Woolf's passionate friendships with women would be key components in her life and fodder for her writings. In 1912, she married Leonard Woolf, a marriage of mutual respect, and they set up Hogarth Press. Their home became a meeting place for creative types, most of them gay, known as the Bloomsbury Group. Their press published the writing of many gay writers like Christopher Isherwood, E.M. Forster, and Vita Sackville West. Virginia Woolf's affairs of the heart with women, often older, highly successful artists like Violet Dickinson, Ethel Smythe, and Vita Sackville West, were revealed in her letters and diary. Some found their way into literary works as tributes to female attachments. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Mary Gay Hutcherson. Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you? Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I am Zaylor Stout. Yes, you are a Zaylor Stout, author, lawyer, and you're an activist as well. I am. And you have this brand new book, Our Gay History in 50 States. Yes. Let's talk about it. Okay. Zaylor Sappho's Stout, Esquire. <laughs> One of my favorite names, I think, ever. He's a lawyer, activist, and now a published author of A Gay History in 50 States. That name is quite memorable, very poetic. <laughs> What's the history behind your name? Well, I'll start with the first name, Zaylor. My mom was actually a Trekkie. So we went to Star Trek conventions. We have signed plates. Yes, that was my life. I grew up in Anaheim, California. And so I think, um, if my memory serves me correct, I'm sure she was inspired by that. She's a very creative woman, so she jumbled up letters that weren't usually used in a name and came up with Zaylor. But if it sounds intergalactic, they could easily have been a Star Trek character. Well, you are trekking across the universe, well, <laughs> across the United States universe, and all the uh, island territories in Washington, D.C., yes. to give us this historical perspective on our history and our community's history in this new book. So, oh, but oh, I have to include another interesting aspect about you. You were the 2018 Lavender Pride cover contest winner. Oh my God. How did you become a, how did you become a cover boy? <laughs> so my really good friend, Barry, who works at Lavender Magazine, convinced me to enter this contest, which was uh, to get on the cover of the first time that Lavender Magazine, which is the largest um, LGBT publication in Minnesota, um, to enter this contest to be on the cover. And um, I submitted a video in regards to, you know, things I've been doing in activism and involvement in the community and advancing um, equity and inclusion in regards to LGBT rights. And the public got to vote in regards to who made it. And I had the most votes. So that's how I got on the cover. Well, <laughs> I'm sure there's more to it than just that. But uh, you also settled into the Twin Cities mm -hmm. via the University of St. Thomas School of Law in 2015. Yep. And you had your own law firm, Zaylor Stout & Associates, and you're an active advocate for many LGBT issues. Mm -hmm. So we're grateful for all the work that you do. Thank you. Only minor correction. Uh, I, moved, I moved to Minnesota in 2007. Seven, right. Yes, for law school. I was there for my law school training and all that. Moved back to California and then returned to Minnesota in 2015. You see, we were trying to hold on to you here. That's why we were just in the years. <laughs> don't now, leave, don't leave. Don't leave, come back, come back. Now, inclusivity 
is a big word for you. And it mm-hmm. really, it's a word that repeats itself a lot, I think, when talking about you and, and just doing some research on you and all that. It's a big word that's a big part of your life. Mm-hmm. It's a core focus of who you are, both professionally and personally. Where do you recognize yourself on the LGBTQIs? Plus. <laughs> well, I would actually be on the plus part. I'd probably classify myself more as pan than anything. But out of the letters that you've outlined and articulated, it would be bisexual then. Given those letters, you see different versions of that depending on what the publication is, Correct. what the online news source is, what the outlet is, and so and so. Do you see less letters need to fully represent our community or more? You know, and this is one of the difficult discussions that I've had with a lot of people, especially as writing this book. I definitely feel and see that there's a generational divide in regards to some of this. But what I would say is at least have the plus so that you're indicating that you're aware that there are others that may not be represented by the letters that you're indicating. Because I think the longest acronym I saw was 15 letters or something. And we're not going to do that. And if you're writing a paper on LGBTQI plus inclusion or something, that's a lot of letters to have to put in every single time and everything. So coming with shorthand, I don't personally see there being anything wrong with it, but I understand the folks that identify differently than the letters that we generally use. And I think the inclusion of the plus provides the fact that you're understanding and recognizing the fact that there are others that are still part of the community that may not specifically be articulated in that particular sentence or framing. Right, because I hear a lot of conversation and articulation about people's comfort levels with how they respond to that. And sometimes in order for us to, I think, to be included, we can't give them a full course meal every time. Sometimes people need a little appetizer to kind of get them used to what's going on and get them to grow, to get them to just at least approach our viewpoint and where we're coming from as far as being identified. Right. I mean, here's the thing. There's many folks within our community that have never met an intersex person that don't know what intersex means, right? I'm still learning. (laughs) So it's like if we need to still educate ourselves in our own community in regards to who is included in our community. So sometimes it's, you know, how can we expect folks that aren't a member of our community to accept us if we're not willing to accept those that are within our own communities? Well, speaking about our community, you've done a lot of research and a lot of traveling, and you're now a published author of this exciting new book for the LGBTQI plus community, Our Gay History in 50 States. When did you recognize the need for this historical record of our community and what led you to that realization? I was actually on a road trip. So I was on a road trip from California back to Minnesota. It was during the whole marriage equality debate and everything. California had passed it and then it was taken away and then, you know, it was still in the courts. Minnesota was about to vote on the marriage equality amendment in Minnesota. You had um, the Olympics in Russia and there's all of that that was going on in regards to, um, you know, banning, even referencing and discussing um, LGBT rights in Russia. Even at that time, there was the um, the um, St. Patrick's Day parade in Boston. In Boston, right? And this was the time, right? This was when I was on. That's this a big ro- deal. When I was on this road trip, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm 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 crossing these different state lines, and I'm and you know, I'm in. A lot of it is conservative land, right? And I'm shaking my fist in the air, saying, you know, why do you guys hate us so much? Right. And it's just like and then I start thinking about it. I started having some time to reflect. And I was like, well, you know, if you're LGBT and you're and you're in a conservative state or a conservative county, you don't stay there. You leave as soon as you can because you're not welcomed. You're not included. You're not brought in to be part, felt like you're part of the community. So you go to more liberal places, more populous spots like bigger cities and states. And so that ends up leaving 
these communities where they have nobody that's LGBT that's out, where they can see that they're just a regular, ordinary, boring person just like everybody else. And so um, what I was thinking about when I was crossing those different state lines is I started thinking, well, what relevance does this state have to LGBT history? What relevance does this state have to LGBT history? Then I got to Wyoming, of course, I thought about Matthew Shepard. And I was like, well, I want to leave flowers at the fence that he was chained up at and left for dead. And I was like, where is this place? And I did some research and I was trying to find it and it wasn't information that was readily available. And I thought, how is that possible? This is like, this should be on a road trip guide for LGBT folks. If there was a guide for LGBT folks on places of significance for us to go to across this country, this is a place that should be on there. And so that was an idea that I had. And, you know, I went along with the month with my road trip and, um, ended up meeting Dennis and Judy Shepard years later at the uh, Quorum National Coming Out Day luncheon in Minneapolis. That was in 2017. Yep, right? 2017. And it was almost 19 years to the day of Matthew's passing. That's the day that I realized that this family is going through the worst day of their life every single day for 19 years for me and my community. And so that's when I thought, hey, I need to do more. And so within two weeks, I was meeting with a friend that's a publisher. So why is he in creative publishing? I met with Dara Beavis. Within two months, I started writing the book. And then two years later, the book is out. Oh, this is amazing. And that you bring up Judy and Dennis Shepard. Because Steve Pride, our executive producer mm -hmm. here at IMRU, and myself have very personal moments and recollections about how Judy and Dennis have touched our lives personally. And then now you and how it's helped with this book. So how have Judy and Dennis Shepard and the Matthew Shepard Foundation impacted your work on this book? They've been the biggest cheerleaders of this whole project. Judy wrote the foreword for the book, which was significant, right? I mean, she's a significant figure within our community. And to have that kind of endorsement was super helpful and super important. I'm an LGBT business owner with my law firm. And so I'm really active in regards to the NGLCC, the National Gay Lesbian Chamber of Commerce. And so they've been able to um, assist in relationship building with them. And so they've provided opportunities for me to be able to you know, my first couple book signings were because of connections that I made through NGLCC, where Bristol-Myers Squibb and Southern California Edison bought books and donated them to people so that they can actually read this important history and get the word out and have additional corporations then maybe along the line come over and sponsor books for different states. So they've provided pathways and opportunities for me to connect with others that I wouldn't necessarily have had on my own. Now, at this event where you met Judy, you were both giving speeches. Yeah. And this is mentioned in your notes, in your author's notes for uh, Our Gay History in 50 States, in your new book. Tell us about that connection and the speech that you were giving and how that related to then when she gave her speech. Yeah, it was tough for me to come up with what I, my coming out story and, and the message that I wanted to share at that coming out luncheon. Because you want it to be happy and uplifting to a certain point, but then tell your coming out story, but then challenge folks as well. And so I was having a difficult time in regards to speaking truth to power in regards to the fact that we have a lot of work that we need to do within our own community in regards to acceptance and inclusion, period, right? And so one of the lines that I felt that was really important that I needed to say was that it shouldn't be more difficult for you to come out as bi or trans to your gay friends than it is to come out as gay or lesbian to your straight friends. 
And it was an amazing, validating feeling to have Judy Shepard then come up after and echo those sentiments that one of the saddest things that she experienced when she was embraced by the LGBT community was this sense of hierarchy within the community and that there wasn't this sense of one family altogether, that there was this infighting that was present. And we can't expect others to fully accept us as a community if we're not willing to accept everybody within our community ourselves. And so I think it's important to speak truth to power and provide that additional opportunity for education and insight. And that's why I was very strategic in regards to ensuring that every letter within the community it was represented in this book in some way, shape, or form. And it wasn't just going to be about gays and lesbians. That's not enough. That's not our full community. A lot of times we just give lip service to all the letters and we'll rattle them off, but we won't include them in regard to the decision-making process. We don't include them in regard to sharing their stories. And that's what I feel that I did here. Yeah, that really struck me. It really struck me when I read that in the, in the forward to your book because you gravitating towards your truth, your authenticity, and having that validated moments later by a speech that she had written prior to this event and, you know, no connection to your speech right. at all. And then to have that truth come out as yeah. well and have it validated by her as a powerful ally, both she and Dennis, mm-hmm. for our community. That really stood out for me and just uh, said, you're on the right path. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Now, what was your process in choosing impactful stories? and LGBTQIA plus individuals for each of our 50 states, as well as Washington, D.C. and all the island territories. Yes. So when I was writing the book, the whole Puerto Rico hurricane and thing came up and all that kind of stuff. So I was very, very intentional in regards to, yes, Puerto Rico is going to be part of this book, right? Even though the title is Archaic History in 50 States, there's bonuses for you in there, right? Guam, U.S. Virgin Islands. But here's the thing. I mean, I love the concept of intersectionality and that people are having more conversations in regards to intersectionality. You, there's not just one aspect of you. There's a lot of things that make you you. And where all those different layers intersect is the true and real you. And so what I wanted to make sure is that any LGBT queer youth that picks up this book is going to be able to find somebody in here that they can personally identify with. So as I was going through and doing research, and I would come up with a state's set of research. So big ton of research for a given state. And then it's like, okay, who's going to make it into this book? I wanted to make sure that it was a diverse population for each and every state. So sometimes the research would come back and it's, you know, there was no lesbian representation came up for Montana. Well, I know that there have been lesbians in our entire country's history that have been from Montana. So what does that mean? To go back and do more research and find representation from that perspective. So there's racial diversity here, there's sexual orientation, there's gender identity. For example, you hear a lot of stories about trans women, but you don't hear as many stories in regards to trans men. So uplifting those stories were really important to me. You don't hear much about individuals that are Asian or Pacific Islanders, making sure that representation is there. And so it was just looking at it from that equity and inclusion lens and that diversity lens to try to make sure that each state was as diverse as possible in regards to that entry. So it's not just California, New York, Florida, and and Illinois where the diversity exists. It's all across the country. If only our government and Hollywood was (laughs) as progressive and as just, you know, active in making things happen and so inclusive. You're putting words into action. You're not just speaking words and just walking away and hoping that people just kind of settle down. Mm -hmm. You're really making things happen. You're really helping lend a voice to so many. In your dedication in the book, Our Gay History in 50 States, you dedicate this book to three categories, chosen family, LGBT plus youth, and allies. Now, who in your life has inspired you to be such an advocate for inclusivity (laughs) in our community? The one person that I would say is my Uncle Leon. 
And so the concept of chosen family is not new to the Black community. I have lots of uncles, aunts, cousins that aren't blood relatives. And it's because, you know, you grew up with them or they've made significant impacts in regards to your life. And Leon, when I was growing up, was my dad's best friend. My parents had gotten divorced. My dad was moving into this place in Venice. He was driving this moving truck and he was having trouble getting it into position. And Leon, the neighbor, just walks out and is like, hey, looks like you need some help. And all these years later, he's still my advisor, my confidant, and he's always loved me. He's always accepted me for who I was. And if my memory serves me correctly, I think he's the first adult that I came out to. And he always had this loving, inclusive viewpoint, and it's stuck with me. So I definitely dedicate that aspect to him. He's an important part of my chosen family. And your chosen family isn't just LGBT folks. It's nope. anybody that's significant. Yeah, we all need an Uncle Leon. <laughs> so thank you, Uncle Leon. Thank when you, you Uncle Leon. <laughs> yeah, what about your LGBT plus youth? Is there any particular person in our LGBT plus youth community that kind of stands out to you that you'd like to dedicate? Yes, mention? yes. So this, again, part of the push for, you know, me being more involved, me running for office and all these different types of things. A young man named Matthew out in St. Louis Park in Minnesota. So with the bathroom bills and the transgender ban and all that kind of stuff that was going on when this new administration came on board, the Allies of St. Louis Park was created out in, in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. And it was just a group of people wanting to get together and advocate for marginalized peoples. And so they had like community roundtables and I had a table talking about transgender rights. It's not about the bathroom. And I ended up meeting Matthew, who is a trans youth, and heard about his family's struggles with the school district not having any policy on the books in regards to how to address trans kids that are coming through the school, right? Because the family knew he was trans when he was in elementary school, and it was just like this guinea pig type situation where there wasn't any formal process. Minneapolis had a process on the books. St. Paul had a process on the books, but not St. Louis Park. And so that got me involved in regards to advocating for a gender inclusion policy there. And so his strength and his passion for being him in school. That's not something that was available for us when we were young. Inspired me, absolutely. Yeah, and for allies, we'll just settle on, we're not settling that by any means, by mentioning <laughs> Judy Shepard. But yeah, it's obvious uh, that Judy, having done the forward for the book, mm -hmm. is definitely probably your most inspiring ally in our community. Now, how did you settle on the name Our Gay History in 50 States? It was a tough choice, but I thought back to Stonewall. And around the Stonewall time, Nobody was fighting in regard to the fact that it was framed as a gay rights movement. We were fighting for our lives. We were fighting all together as one. And so since this is a history book, I hearken back to that initial moment where we all came together to fight collectively as one. And so, yes, if you go further into the book, in the intro, I have a breakdown in regards to who is encompassed in regards to this book, and it includes everybody. But trying to bring us back to that one unit, so the gay rights movement, gay history. Absolutely. And your goal is to get this as a school book, as a text, as a resource for our youth Absolutely. throughout the country in every single state, island territories, and Washington, D.C. And currently we have what, a total of five states that have passed laws to teach LBT plus history? Absolutely. Yep. California, Illinois, New Jersey, Colorado. Oh, what was the other one? California, New Jersey, Colorado. Oh, Illinois. Illinois. New Jersey. Yeah. New, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so California was first, followed by New Jersey, mm -hmm. and then the others that we just mentioned. So yes. when is the publishing date for the book? Oh, the book's out. The book's been out since it's October. Out. Yeah, October last year. We should all be out. 
Yes. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Where can we find you on social media? Oh, social media at Gay50States. And the website is Gay50States.com. Thank you so much for coming in today. And we're going to have you back, I think, time and time again, because there are a lot of stories to tell here. Lots of stories. Lots right. of history. Take care. Thank you. <laughs> Don't go away. We'll be right back. Virginia Woolf, prolific writer, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Virginia Woolf's first book was The Voyage Out in 1915, but she was crowned one of the leading writers of modernism with the publication of two other books, The Waves and To the Lighthouse. She used innovative literary techniques to reveal women's experience and present an alternative to the male-dominated views of reality. As brilliant as her career was, Woolf was plagued by bouts of mental illness. In 1941, at the age of 59, she loaded her pockets with heavy rocks and drowned herself in a river near her Sussex home. A note to her husband said, I have a feeling I shall go mad. I cannot go on longer in these terrible times. I hear voices and cannot concentrate on my work. I have fought against it, but cannot fight any longer. I owe all my happiness to you, but cannot go on and spoil your life. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Mary Gay Hutcherson. Hello, I'm Barney Frank. And you were listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Zaylor Stout. And I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Next up, our tribute to Bayard Rustin, a gay African-American civil rights hero, a trusted advisor to Martin Luther King Jr., and an architect of the March on Washington and the Civil Rights Movement. I remember about 5.30 in the morning, I was out on the mall, and the press was surrounding me, and they were saying, Mr. Rustin, Mr. Rustin, what's happening? You said there were going to be a quarter of a million people, and there are scarcely a half dozen here. I remember taking out of my pocket a blank sheet of paper and taking my watch out of the other pocket. I looked at my watch in the blank sheet of paper, and I said, gentlemen, everything is going according to Hoyle. And uh, I was terrified that people weren't going to show up. That the official count is that we have over 200,000 people in I now bring to you the executive director of the March on Washington, the man who organized this whole thing, Mr. Bayard Rustin. Ladies and gentlemen, the first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation, no compromise, no filibuster, and that it includes public accommodations, decent housing, integrated education, FEPC, and the right to vote. What do you say? And before I'd be a slave, 25, 30 years ago, the barometer of human rights in the United States were black people. That is no longer true. The barometer for judging the character of people in regard to human rights is now those who consider themselves uh, gay, homosexual, lesbian. We are all one, and if we don't know it, we will learn it the hard way. I'll be buried in my grave.
go home Next up, Vash Bodhi sits down with Walter Nagel, lifelong partner of Baird Rustin, in the New York City apartment they shared together. I have a dream. I got a dream. So why don't you tell me your name? My name is Walter Nagel. I am a 62-year-old white male. I live in New York City, and my time is pretty much devoted at this point to preserving the legacy of Bayard Rustin and promoting information about him to the larger community, educating people about him. Will you tell me who Bayard Rustin was? Bayard Rustin was a significant figure in the advancement of the democratization of the United States in the 20th century. And that's a very general and a broad definition. Most people remember him as the organizer of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where Dr. Martin Luther King gave his very famous I Have a Dream speech. Bayard was 51, 52 years old at that point in his life, and he had 25, 30 years of actively organizing prior to that. He wasn't just involved in African-American civil rights issues. He was involved in what we think of nowadays as human rights issues before that term was really in the common nomenclature. He was working in anti-colonial movements abroad over in Africa. He was over in India during the end of the British colonization of India. He was working against the proliferation of atomic weapons. So he wasn't sort of a one-issue person, but the large umbrella issue was the whole issue of making the world safer and providing rights to all people all over the world. How did you meet Bayard? I met Bayard in 1977 in Times Square, kind of the crossroads of the world. And at that point, I was thinking of relocating to San Francisco. This was in April. And I was waiting on the corner to cross the street and go over to the store, and Bayard came along, and we were both standing there, and we just kind of looked at each other, and (laughs) lightning struck. I made it to the store. I got my newspaper, but I never made it out to San Francisco. And, you know, we were sort of dating spending a lot of time together, weekends together, for the first year or so. And then I pretty much moved in with him in his apartment. In New York City? Yeah, right here in this apartment that we're sitting in. Yeah, this is where we lived together for the 10 years that I was with him. What are some of the things and ways or obstacles that Bayard had? And i also like for you to tell me some of the ways that he's really inspirational to people. Bayard had baggage, if you will. When he first came to New York, he had a brief flirtation of affiliation with the Young Communist League. Because at that time, the Communist Party was really one of the few organizations that was dealing with the issue of racial discrimination, segregation, racial injustice. They had a committee to um, end discrimination in the military. And in the early days of World War II, the Communist Party was against World War II. And so they were out there agitating people to resist you know, service to that kind of thing. and That was consistent with Bayard's own beliefs. But then when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, they just did it about face, like overnight. And they told Bayard to disband his committee to end discrimination. And he felt that, you know, this was uh, unwarranted, untrue, if you will, not faithful to the reasons that he joined the League. And so he, he just left. Another thing was he was a draft resistor, a conscientious objector during World War II. And World War II, we always think of that as the good war. It was the fight against Hitler and Nazism. And so taking that kind of a position was not very popular at the time. And of course, the third thing was the fact that he was gay. He was homosexual. 
And he was arrested on a Morals charge in 1953 out in Pasadena, California. Morals charge? Well, what they used to call back then Morals charge, lewd vagrancy, that kind of thing. He was discovered in the backseat of a car with two guys, like, I don't know, it was like, I think, one or two in the morning on a back street. And, you know, he was arrested and he did time in the local jail. And so when people wanted to attack the movement, if Bayard was any kind of a visible presence, they would kind of go for the juggernaut, they would go for him, and it's, they would, you know, here's this commie pinko fag leading the civil rights movement and organizing these demonstrations. And they got away with that for quite a number of years. But as far as overcoming the obstacles, Bayard was someone who was very strong. He had a very strong sense of identity. He had tremendous personal courage. He was out there in the 1940s sometimes by himself, sometimes with three or four other activists going into the South and riding on trains and buses, going into restaurants, being arrested, and really risking their lives. I mean, they could have been lynched. And so he had a really strong sense of himself and a strong sense of standing up to evil, if you will. And so he was not discouraged or he was not defeated by these continuous attacks. Where he was disappointed in the fact that the leadership, including Dr. King, did not support him. You know, when these threats came to light, they would say, okay, well, we got to ditch Rustin for a while, or we got to send him into the shadows or whatever. So he would kind of disappear off the, off the scene for a while. But then when the 1963 march came, Strom Thurmond tried the same thing. It was about two weeks before the march. He got up on the Senate floor and read into the Senate record, you know, Byard's arrest record and all of this stuff. And that was the time when the civil rights leadership, under the leadership of A. Philip Randolph, who was really the dean of the civil rights movement, that was the time when they rallied around Byron. Mr. Randolph was kind of telling people to step into line here, if you will. It was two weeks before the march. The tremendous organization had gone into it. It was going to happen one way or the other. It was like a train coming down the track. There was no way to really turn it around. And so finally... The United Leadership, you know, with Mr. Randolph as the spokesman, came out and made a statement on behalf of Byard's character. And because of that, you know, it kind of eliminated the opportunities of people to do that kind of thing in the future. You know, it pulled the rug out. And I'm not going to say that people didn't try it. People did try it. But at that point, it was like, you know, all of this stuff, it's out there. It's in the national news. It's on the front page of the newspapers. So that's it. There's nothing more to be said about it. So they united around him and supported him as the deputy director of the march, and things moved forward. So what would you say were some of Byard's greatest accomplishments? I guess if you had to say one thing, you know, you would say the March on Washington. And it was an accomplishment. I mean, people look at the March on Washington, and they always associate it with Dr. King. You know, Dr. King gave the greatest speech on that day, and possibly the greatest speech of his life. There were many other people that spoke that day. Byard spoke or read the demands of the march that day. But what you need to think about is Washington at that time was pretty much a southern city. It was a segregated city. There were not a lot of places where African Americans could stay, eat, do that kind of thing. I mean, people were terrified of the march. Nothing like that had ever been seen before. The Kennedy administration was lobbying and working against it. They finally had to just give in to it and cooperate with it, but they were terrified. Businesses closed down. Certainly all of the liquor stores in Washington area were closed that day, and people left the city because they were afraid. 
We think of the I Have a Dream speech, which was really the last speech of the day, I think. But what would have happened had violence broken out? That speech might have never been delivered. And so it was because of the masterful organization of Byron that really gave the platform, gave the opportunity for that speech to be delivered. So I think, you know, that was a, truly a great accomplishment. But I think more importantly, he was largely responsible for showing Americans a way to nonviolently petition your government, whether it be your local government or the national government, to organize nonviolently, to be out there and demonstrating and to achieve gold. He'd gone over to India and studied with the heirs of Gandhi after Gandhi was assassinated. And he really learned, I think, the mechanics and the ideas behind really bringing large groups of people together. That was the main thing that he really offered to Dr. King. I have a dream. I got a dream. Let me tell you, Zaylor, we have a lot to learn. And every time we do this show, it's a reminder of how much I don't know and how much I need to know. There's so much history out there. And so it's incumbent upon us to learn about it ourselves and then share it with others. Absolutely. Well, that's the end of our show. We know you have choices on the radio dial, and we appreciate you spending time with us today. So thank you. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in the LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. A little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcasts where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good Good night. night.